Well, as we're continuing in our series, uh, we're calling the five ones, uh, we're looking at a few core patterns of Christian behavior. And, uh, that, and that behavior that flows out of what we believe as Christians or, or who we are now as Christians. And, and all through time and in every part of the world, you will find Christians behaving pretty much the same way, following the same patterns of behavior because they flow out of who we are in the world and what we believe. And so if Jesus doesn't return in 200 years or 500 years or 1,000 years in the future, then Christians in 200 years, 500 years, 1,000 years from now are still going to be doing the same things that Christians have always been doing 200 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. Because there's good reasons why Christians do what we do. And so today in our series on the five ones, which are the five things that we do, um, we're talking about small groups and discipleship. And so I obviously brought some Oreos, um, a bag of Oreos to explain this. And uh, I brought an Oreo. That's kind of cruel, isn't it? I brought Oreos not just because it's Thanksgiving, and, and we should thank Nabisco. And specifically Sam Porcello, who's the inventor of the Oreo cookie for providing us with the ultimate dippable cookie sandwich. But because Oreos are actually, they're tasty, but because Oreos actually give us a picture of how small groups are meant to work in the Christian life. Now, you didn't think I'd actually eat all these myself, did you? No, I'm going to put these here. And if you're, if you're, let's say, up to the age of 10... If you're up to the age of 10, you can come have an Oreo cookie. We're just going to get this sugar train running right now. (laughs) Hang on, I got more. I made sure there was lots. There you go. You guys come get, come get one cookie. You guys come get one cookie. There you go. Where were all you kids hiding? Yeah, they're small. They just fit right in. There you go. You can all have one cookie. Good job. Everybody get a cookie? All the kids? There's some more up here, so later on I might let some of the older people come up too. Get some more. (laughs) But the Oreo cookie actually is a picture of how small groups are meant to work in the Christian life. And all through the New Testament, we see small groups at work, right? Jesus chose 12 disciples, and the Apostle Paul had Luke and Timothy and Barnabas and Julia and Phoebe and Titus and Euodia and Priscilla and, and, and of course, all the other apostles who labored with him in ministry and, uh, and, and how they held each other accountable and how they spurred one another on and how they, they worked in, in ministry and in mission together. So we know in, in, in the book of Acts, we say that... Uh, there's members of the early churches of various cities, and uh, and we got to remember that the early church was largely made up of mega churches. Okay, like the church in Jerusalem had 3,000 members the very first day, and uh, so these churches in these cities in Corinth and Ephesus and all these places, the church in Ephesus, the church in Corinth, was thousands upon thousands of believers. They they were literally mega churches, but they met together in each other's homes in smaller gatherings, and it was something that was repeated in city after city as the church grew. 
And uh, we see that in Acts 2 and in 16 and in 28 and in 1 Corinthians 16 and Philemon 2 and a whole bunch of other places. And so we know that the early church, when we talk about the behavior of Christians, is that they gathered together in these small groups. But today what I want to look at specifically is in the letter to the Hebrews and consider why Christians so naturally fell into this pattern of behavior of meeting together in small groups in each other's homes, sharing food, praying, serving, and encouraging one another. When we come to believe in Jesus and our hearts and our minds are opened up to the truth of God and and our hearts and our minds are opened up to His promises and our salvation in Christ Jesus and all that God has in store for us, it would be great if we could just charge out into the world on fire and full of faith and fully sanctified and free from our flesh and, and just selflessly ministering and sharing Christ with each other and everyone that we encounter without needing anyone else. That would be fantastic if that happened. But the reality of our life here on this earth is that we're still part of the fleshly kingdom. God is accomplishing His purposes in us as Christians while we are still jars of clay, just as the letter to the Romans says. And God intends that we don't live out our Christian life in either independence, pretending that we don't need any help from anybody, nor does He intend that we live out our Christian life in isolation, cut off from the encouragement and support and mercy of other people. So we live our Christian life and we behave as believers because of what we believe and how God is working out his kingdom. We work in these small groups of believers because we're neither independent, believing that we don't need anybody, nor are we isolated and cut off from all encouragement. And our problem, though, as Christians, that the writer of Hebrews identifies very early on and then provides a solution for is that as Christians, our foolish hearts wander. And we tend to be drifters. And so if you look in the book of Hebrews, which is where we're going to look today very quickly, in this letter to the Hebrews, we will see that the writer of this letter has in mind an Oreo cookie. Well, maybe he didn't literally have an Oreo cookie in mind. But as he's writing, there's a pattern of writing in the book of Hebrews which explains that we have the truth and the knowledge and the doctrine of the promises of God, but then we also have something else that leads us in our Christian life. But he identifies the problem in Hebrews 2, verse 1. He says, For this reason we must pray, pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. So in chapter 1 of Hebrews, if you remember the amazing opening to the letter to the Hebrews, he's talking about, Jesus and who Jesus is as the Son of God and all of that incredible doctrine and the promise of God through Jesus. And then in chapter 2, he starts out saying we must pay attention, much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. And that's one of the key reasons why this letter is written to Christians. The writer of the letter of Hebrews knows that his fellow Christians are aware of who Jesus is. He knows that they know the promises of God. I mean, being Jewish, Hebrews, they know them very well. But what he wants them to see is to show them how not to drift away from the gospel that they have heard and believed. And so because the reality of the Christian life is that we're always tempted not to treasure Jesus as we should, but we're tempted to treasure other things in our life. We're tempted not to see the preciousness of the promises of God, but to put our hope in lesser things than his promises. In other words, we tend as Christians to drift away from Jesus and drift away from God's promises. And that's why this letter was written, and that's why it was written to urge us towards the kind of small group relationships that I'm talking about here in the third of the five ones. This one group that we are meant to have as Christians, as believers, we're meant to be together. 
And that's why I immediately, of course, thought of an Oreo cookie, because it's how the book of Hebrews was written. And I'm just going to briefly look at a sample outline of Hebrews, and then we'll focus on two or three of these. And I just want you to see the Oreo effect of small groups. And because I think if I subconsciously associate Oreos with small groups, then you will all want to be in small groups. There's like a Pavlovian thing here that I'm trying to do. If you think of small groups when you think of Oreos, or you think of Oreos when you think of small groups, you're going to be, want to be in a group. So this is all very deliberate. But here's the pattern. In chapter 1, remember, it opens up talking about Jesus and how glorious he is and, and who he is as the Son of God. And it starts out with that doctrine and that promise. And then in chapter 2, it bounces up and it talks about fellowship and encouragement, saying we have to play close attention and not drift away. And then in chapters 2 to 3, it goes back into doctrine again. And it talks about um, the, the promises of who, of who God is and what his doctrine is. And then in chapter 3b, we get another encouragement. And then you go to chapters 4 and 5, and you get uh, you know, more doctrine and truth in the promises of God and what we believe. And then it goes up to chapter 6, and we get more encouragement to be together in small group fellowship. And then you go down to chapter 7 and 10, and it talks about Jesus and the high priestly... Uh, his high priestly order of Melchizedek and how we have a better high priest and all that truth and promise. And then you bounce up to chapter 10 and you get more encouragement. And then you go down to 11 and 12, you get more doctrine and truth. And then in chapter 13, you get more encouragement to meet together and not give up. And so all those things work together to create that yummy Christian life filling that just is what you want between the two layers, right? And you see, this is the Oreo effect of small group ministry and it's the Oreo effect of the book of Hebrews. Okay, it just keeps, the writer just keeps bouncing back and forth between, you know these great truths, you have all these great promises in God, Jesus is your high priest, the temple is gone, it's a new covenant, the old is done, we have a better mountain now, it's not Mount Sinai, it's Mount Jerusalem, I could go on and on, Hebrews is fantastic, but then when he's layering all those truths, he keeps bouncing back up to, and so don't give up meeting together, and so then all the more we should be together and love each other and do all these things, and so there's this effect in Hebrews that he's doing. That's the pattern, and that's what we want to see, is that truth and beauty and the reality of doctrine is combined with fellowship and hospitality to be a sort of sandwich that conforms us into this good outflowing of the Christian life. So let's just see this in a couple of places. In the rest of chapter 2 and part of chapter 3, the writer goes back to explaining the promises of God or the doctrinal truth that we believe. For example, the world is subject to Jesus and the good news that Jesus died to defeat death for everyone. He says in Hebrews 2, 8-9, he says, In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Wow, fantastic doctrine, fantastic truth, amazing promise that we see Jesus who has tasted death for everyone so that we don't have to taste death. And there's more in there, of course, than just that. But after laying out that promise or that truth, the writer then comes back in Hebrews chapter 3 and he says, because this is true, Hebrews 3, 12 to 13, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You see what happened there? There's something that's true. Here's a promise of God. Here's a reality of Jesus. But the writer knows that we wander. He knows, remember in chapter 2, he says he knows that we drift away. And so he says again, watch out that you turn away, that you don't turn away from this truth. 
but be encouraging one another daily so you don't get tricked by sin. Christian, he's saying, you are meant to be living side by side close enough and transparent enough in your lives with each other to guard each other from sin daily. Daily, it says here. I would settle for weekly. If you got together in groups weekly and guarded each other and encouraged one another's weekly, that would be great. He says daily be encouraging one another. And we can do that. I mean, with Facebook and texting and all that stuff, you can, you can be encouraging each other daily. But there are times and there are seasons in our small groups and our relationships where people really are there for each other daily, aren't they? I mean, there was a time just a, a few weeks ago that myself and another elder were in contact and ministering alongside each other daily because that's what our body of Christ needed at the time. And so literally every day we were in contact with each other. Every day we were ministering and encouraging to each other side by side. Okay, so let's see another one of these patterns. In Hebrews, later on in Hebrews, in chapters 7 to 10, the writer is laying out more doctrinal truth about Jesus and the promises of God. And in 7 to 10, he's explaining how Jesus is our high priest and he is a greater high priest than any high priest that's come before. And that as our high priest, he is the mediator or the overseer of a better covenant. The old law is dead with its sacrifices and is dead with its temple and altar and priests. And the new covenant has come that is just Jesus and the cross. And he writes in Hebrews 7, he says, But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, we could just preach on that for a few hours, but we're not going to, right? Okay, so he lays out this truth that Jesus, that God has sworn he will not change his mind. Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant. Powerful. So then, of course, he writes a lot more than that, but he's outlining that promise of God that Jesus, that if we put all our hope in him, then God promises he will forgive our sins and we will spend eternity with him. That's staggering. And so we're not going to get into that, but, but that's the bottom wafer of the Oreo cookie now, right? And now we know the writer knows that we're foolish and that we're wanderers and that we are prone to drift in our lives. And so on the other side of that doctrine, the writer of Hebrews goes on to sandwich us in there and he adds another layer of fellowship and encouragement. And in Hebrews chapter 10, after explaining this, he says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Okay. It's the promises that are key. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So in other words, the promise is the key. Don't give up hope in what we've professed, but the context is in community. The context of that promise is that we don't give up meeting together and we don't give up encouraging each other and all the more as we see the day approaching. So you see it again, right? You see the bottom layer of the Oreo is doctrine and truth and the promises of God. And the top layer of the Oreo cookie that the writer is building here is fellowship and encouragement and being together in small groups of believers that are lifting one another up. 
And the whole point of these two things, the whole point of God's promises and the hope and the truth that he's given us in Christ Jesus and the family that he has given us in the church to encourage one another and spur one another on is that middle piece that everybody wants to take the pieces off, right? You're always trying to get the pieces apart because you want that yummy middle. You want that good, sweet Christian life that you're living out in the middle. But the thing is, you can't take the doctrine out of the bottom, And you can't take the fellowship off the top. Okay, I know I'm a little bit of a heretic here, but you gotta eat the Oreo cookie all in one piece. Alright, you gotta have the top and the bottom with the yummy, creamy filling in the middle. Alright? If we don't have the promises and the doctrine of God underneath it all, and we don't have regular fellowship and involvement of other believers constraining us on the other side, then the Christian life can just become this kind of indistinct, unformed kind of mess. And I get the analogies breaking down a little bit here, okay? But you you see what I'm saying, right? The writer of Hebrews here has an aim, which is to give shape to and conform our Christian lives. He's trying to bookend, he's trying to sandwich our Christian lives between the doctrine and promise and truth of God and the encouragement and the love and the mercy and the fellowship of other believers. That's what he's trying to do. Remember the promises on one hand and have believers holding you accountable on the other side. And what emerges is this Christian experience in life. And so, okay, just one more bigger text here at the end where we can see how this whole Oreo effect continues working together in the Christian life. And this is Hebrews 13, 1 to 7. And in this passage, you can kind of see how it works. He says, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be considered by all, be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Okay, so again, in chapters 11 and 12, the writer's gone through another cycle of doctrine about the promises of God, talking about the faith of the forefathers, you know, Hebrews 11, the faith chapter, right? So he's, he's talking about the faith that our forefathers had and the better covenant that's established on the mountain of Jerusalem versus the old covenant that was established on the Mount of Sinai. And it's really rich doctrinal truth. He's talked about our endurance and our straight paths and peace and holiness in our lives. And now here in in Chapter 13, he's describing the filling. He's describing the Christian life now lived out. He says here in in verses 1 to 7, he says, loving one another, showing hospitality to strangers, caring for those who are prisoners, literally and figuratively, prisoners to sin, prisoners in bondage to addiction, prisoners bound by poverty, people who are abused and mistreated, suffering from broken relationships, suffering physically, suffering emotionally. He's talking about keeping marriages healthy. He's talking about staying sexually pure. He's talking about fleeing from greed and worldly riches and idolatry. He's talking about rehearsing the gospel teaching that you've heard from your leaders. And notice here, these issues that are at stake are life issues. Okay, the writer is talking about money, sex, marriage, difficult relationships, entrapment in sin, 
And he's also talking about community and belonging and caring for each other and love and hospitality to strangers. Those things that he's talking about in these seven verses are life things. They're the stuff we all live. We live out marriage and sex and money and hardship, right? This is life issues that he's talking about and he's saying live these things out together. The underpinning of the expectations of the Christian life here is truth about God. Right? He brings it back there. He says, God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And so we say in confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? So it's the truth of the promises of God that we're basing our confidence in, but we're doing it in community in real life situations. This is not just theory. This is not just doctrine. This is not just you know hermeneutics. This is what's going on in your marriage. This is what's going on in your love life. This is what's going on in your finances. This is what's going on with people who are addicted. This is what's going on with people who are suffering. This is what's going on in your relationships. These are life issues that the writer wants Christian believers to be founding their hope on the promises of God in together in community. Those truths are practically worked out in communities of love. So that's why he says, he starts out by saying, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Because here's what the writer knows. As we actually live as Christians, the storms of life can come along and knock us off the promises of God. That's the problem that he started with in chapter 2. Verse 1 of chapter 2, right? He said we drift. He said we wander. He said we are prone to drift from these things because the storms come along and we get knocked off our promises. And the pleasures of the world lure us off the promises of God. And the devil tempts us off the promises of God. And so the solution to holding on to those promises and keeping our life on track with them is not isolated heroism, heroism, but it's small groups of believers caring for each other and ministering to each other and learning together and walking together and pointing each other towards God's promises again and again and again in all these areas of our life. And so at Lakeside Church, this is and it has been in every healthy church for 200 years or more, a core component of how we aim to do ministry together and take spiritual care of each other. As you come here Sunday by Sunday, what this writer to the Hebrews would say, any apostle or any disciple would say, what God says is that Pastor Paul or the elders can't be your only spiritual guides. Pastoral staff and and ministry leaders are not the only people who are guiding you in your life. My aim, our aim in church and our goal in this larger context is to equip and mentor healthy leaders that function in groups and love each other the way verse 1 talks about in Hebrews 13 there. We're here to coach and mentor and lead you into groups of discipleship that are there for each other to fight the fight of faith in very practical everyday ways that verses 2 through 6 in 13 talk about. And so if you choose... If you come to church and you like the singing and you like the preaching and you like the prayer and you like the community at church and you choose to come to church but you choose not to be in some kind of small group, then basically what you're doing as a Christian is you're choosing to step away from the ordinary means of grace. You're choosing to step away from the ordinary practical means by which church is designed to care for and influence your life. 
You're not meant to be independent, and you're not meant to be isolated as a Christian. You're meant to be together in community, and not just in the larger church of Halliburton, not just in the larger church of Corinth or Ephesus or Rome or Jerusalem. It was not just within the larger church you were meant to be in community. You were meant to be meeting together in one another's homes, singing praise and praying for each other and spurring one another on with the promises of God, as it talks about in Hebrews here. And so this is what I mean. That when you are in a small group, you have people then, when you are ill or you are trapped in some way, who are able to come and minister you. They visit you in the hospital or they come and they bring you some food or they pray with you or whatever. Right? If you're in a situation in your marriage where the marriage is not pure or there is disruption in your marriage, you are among other couples who have been there with you and been there before you who are able to encourage you with the promises of God in your marriage. If you're a young person or an older person and you're struggling with sexual purity and you are really trying to figure out how to make that work in your life. You are alongside other guys and girls who have made that work in their life, and they can disciple you in that. You are together in small groups so that you can show hospitality to strangers, so that you have people that are beside you, that you can invite people over for dinner, you can have a potluck, whatever, and you can show compassion and mercy to people who need it. You are in a small group so that you can talk about how you're using money in your life and how you are freed from greed and how you're freed from the temptations of the world in the area of finances. Or you're in a small group talking about what we talked about on Sunday morning, talking about this sermon or, or, or going through the book of John. You're, you're working together to increase your understanding and knowledge of the promises of God. All of these things are happening in small group ministry and you're using your spiritual gifts and you're serving together. And so if you just picture what that's like here at Lakeside, with those types of groups and how we get there, what we need is we need this Oreo effect, right? We need, these, we need strong doctrine. We need hope and counting on the promises of God. And we need that sandwiched with, on top, we need those small groups that are keeping our, keeping our lives bookended so that we can't go off on our own and feel like we're unsupported or feel like we don't have hope or we don't have somebody striving there beside us. Take those promises and doctrine of God and bound them in the context of fellowship and community to produce a faithful and effective Christian life. This is the way it's been done for 2,000 years. We're not going to improve upon it. And so that's what we want to do here. And so as we think about this in the weeks to come, you can think about, and we've been going through this checklist and thinking, you know, are you, are you, are you here on Sunday? Are you gathering for worship? Do you have a, a personal prayer time on a regular basis with God? Are you in a group for fellowship and discipleship? Do you have a ministry? Do you have a friend for evangelism? We're going through this as a bit of a checklist. And, and if you have all of these things, that's great. You're, you're, do, you're doing well and you're doing the right kind of things that, that show up in a Christian life well lived. But if some of these are missing, then the purpose of this series is to ask ourselves, why is that missing? And so when we look at this third one, one group for discipleship, the question that we're asking ourselves like today, this week, the next couple weeks is, am I in a small group? Do I have these, this group of people around me that are encourage me, encouraging me with the promises of God? Do I have this group of people that I'm meeting with on a regular basis that are holding me accountable and that I can serve beside and whose spiritual gifts complement mine and we can do things for the kingdom together? Right? Do I have that in my life? And if I don't, why don't I? And then secondly, I'll throw out there, am I leading one of those groups? Right? Because one of the things that we need is we need people to host and to lead these groups. And they don't have to be the same person. You can have a host and you can have a leader. That's the great thing about small groups is one person doesn't have to do it all. 
And so at Lakeside, what we want to see is a partnering of spiritual gifts. Those who have a passion to encourage and show mercy and, and exhort and build others up and you know, are great with connecting and getting people to gather together on a Tuesday night or whatever. We need people like that to be leading small groups. And then at the same time, we need people who are just hospitable, that just like to open up their homes, homes and have people come in and you know, have some Oreos or something you know, for a snack and some milk. I'm sorry I couldn't have milk. It was going to get messy if I had the milk too, but... You really got to have milk with the Oreos. But, you know, you just gather together. And what you can do is you can find two or three other people who are, have different spiritual gifts than you and who are going to help you sort of form a small group. So we need both. We need people who are like, yeah, I'm not in a small group and I want one. And then we need people who are like, you know what, God's really calling me to be a part of the fabric of how this all works and I want to open up my home or I want to make myself available to lead a small group. And when you have both of those things working together... Then you have, you know, the small groups. You got, you got like bags of Oreos everywhere. You know, you got the doctrine of God being taught. You got the promises of God encouraging and being spoken into each other's lives. And you got the, you got the fellowship of believers that are constraining it. And then in the middle, you've got that Christian life well lived. Because if you are just, some people want to, you know, some people want to take just the doctrine and they think, well, I got my Bible, I'm good. I don't, I don't need anybody else got my Bible, I'm fine. I don't want to go to somebody's house. I don't want people telling me. I don't want people in my business. I don't want people telling me what to do. I don't, I don't want to, you know, I'm not a very good encourager. And so they're just like half a cookie. And then you got other people, they're like, oh, I love the fellowship. You know, I love church and I, and I love all the fellowship. I'll go, you know, I'll go eat people's food all night long, you know. But they, they, don't, but they don't know the truth. You know, they don't have the doctrine of God. You know, they're just like, I love church. I love the friendliness. I love the people and I love the food. And, and so they got, they got all the fellowship and they love it but they don't have the doctrine. And and what the writer of Hebrews is saying, and and how God has always planned it, is that you got the doctrine of God and you got the fellowship, and you put those two things together, and then you got the way God intended it, that our Christian life would be built up on the promises and the doctrine and the truth of God, and it will be bounded and conformed by regular meeting together with other believers who help us live out that life together. And so now I always want you to remember when you think of small groups, think of Oreo cookies, right? It's a good thing. And whenever you see an Oreo cookie, think small group. And I'm hoping this takes effect in your subconscious. Let's pray. Father God, <laughs> we just thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter to the Hebrews. Thank you for the incredible richness of its doctrinal truth. I mean, it is packed with promises from you about who Jesus is, about the gospel, about our salvation, about the new covenant, about just everything. But Father, what I thank you for is that the writer doesn't just write a theoretical, theological treatise. Every time he talks about the promises of God, he sandwiches it in there with an encouragement and exhortation to say, don't give up meeting together. Love one another. Don't drift. Apply these promises to your money, to your finances, to your marriage, to your life, to people in prison, people who are mistreated, just in hospitality, in mercy, in grace, in goodness. It's not just doctrine and truth, Lord. It's the reality of our life together as Christians. And so I pray this morning, Lord, that we would take this seriously that we would look around and we would find those people who are maybe drifting, who are maybe feeling isolated, and we would invite them into our group. Maybe that would be the start of a group. Or maybe we'd look around our home and we'd say, I got a big rec room. You know, I got three or four couches. I could put 10 people in here on a Tuesday night. And we look around and we say, how can I be encouraging fellow believers? 
so that we are ministering the way you intended in your kingdom. Father, I just pray that you would put, us, put that on our hearts today. In Christ's name, amen.